Good to see you, and uh, good to be back after uh, having some time off, and uh, good uh, to be with you who are joining us online as well. My name is Josh, one of the pastors here, and uh, yeah, it's good to be back. You know, um, as many of you know, every summer I take about uh, five or six weeks off from preaching, uh, starting in uh, early mid-July, and uh, use that time to kind of regroup and refresh and uh, plan for the coming ministry year. And then also uh, these last three Sundays kind of bookended a couple weeks of vacation for me and for my family. The first week was just, just me, not my family. They got a vacation for me. I went and rode my bike across Iowa with uh, about 20,000 other people. I've done that for 10 years now, and uh, it's a blast. I love it. I grew up in Iowa. It's called Ragbri. You see a picture I took this that week. And then after that, uh, along with Hannah and Charlie and Hannah's mom and dad, we went up to a Christian camp in northern Wisconsin called Forest Springs. And we've done that for, I think, eight years now, and uh, just a week of, of family camp together. And so that was good. And uh, normally after that, we'd uh, venture over to Minneapolis for a few days to see some of my family. All my brothers live up there. Uh, but we ended up getting sick that week, and so we came home early. And uh, so if, if I sit down on the stool later, it's because I feel like an old man today. I just feel tired. So um, you forgive me too if I end up sucking on something here while we're going as well, just so I don't cough too much in the microphone. But, uh, you know, as I took time to, to really think about the ministry year in front of us and, and all the things coming, you know, uh, one thing that you just still can't escape is just the reality of how COVID has affected our lives. I mean, think about how different our world is compared to 18 months ago. There are so many things that are different. So much has changed. And, um, you know, one of the things that seems really clear to me, and maybe see if you agree with any of these things, is that, that people are tired. You feel tired? Uh, or people are fatigued. Seems to me too, people are kind of grumpy, like more grumpy than normal. People seem to be highly charged in their opinions about everything. You notice that? Here, let me, let me see if I can get you fired up. Masks, vaccines, politics. I mean, you kind of even feel that already in you, don't you? Depending where you land on some of those issues. People are more divided and more contentious about everything than I've ever seen in almost two decades of ministry. People are struggling with, with mental illness and anxiety in record numbers. People seem to be just kind of off the charts critical about everything and complaint-filled. People are numb. A lot of people are less committed, self-focused, understandably. Do you feel any of those things? I mean, we see it all over in our culture. We, we see it on social media. And you know, if we're honest, we even, we see it in ourselves and in our church. You know, a consistent thing that I, I, I just I hear from people is, I'm, I'm, I'm tired, I'm worn out, Josh, I'm, I'm spent. And, you know, in, in nearly every ministry of our church, we just see this anecdotally, too. Do you know we're a church of about, when you count all the kids, of about 450 people? 
Isn't that crazy? But uh, did you know also, um, in every ministry, we're, we're struggling to find people to serve, and we need people to serve, and people are stepping down from serving just because they're tired? And I get it. I totally get it, because I feel tired too. And, and we need people to serve. And the, the other thing, even in terms of attendance, you know, uh, this is all kind of anecdotal, but I would guesstimate that at least a third, maybe up to close to half of people who call Wawasee home, do you know uh, what average attendance has become? About once a month, 12 times a year. People are tired and they're fatigued and they don't want to be committed to much. And um, it's just rampant in our culture. You know, uh, for about 20 years, have you heard of Gallup or polling uh, research organization? For about 20 years, they've done a nationwide study gauging uh, the mental health of people in our nation. And they have some specific questions they ask and have people kind of self-assess and answer. And do you know, uh, at the end of 2020, when their results came out, it was uh, by, a, by about... 13%, it was the worst uh, state of mental health that had ever been reported by people in our country. And they measured apart, apart, across different demographics of people, and uh, every demographic was down, except for one category. Do you know what it was? There was actually one category in 2020 whose mental health they rated as higher than it had been the year before. You know what that category was? It was a pretty specific one. It was people who attended church, not monthly, but weekly. People who were committed to their church. And uh, in that scientific survey, it's amazing that every other category, people's mental health suffered, but those who attended services weekly actually saw an uptick in their mental well-being. It makes you think that maybe God was on to something when he had the writer of Hebrews record, uh, don't neglect meeting together and encouraging one another, especially as the day draws near, as the days grow darker. Don't neglect that. Don't neglect encouraging one another and coming together. Now, it's not like there's something you know, magical about just stepping in the building that you're going to feel better. But the reason, I think, for that stat is that when we gather together, we're seeking the source of our joy and of our happiness. And we're worshiping him, and we're drawing near to him. The psalmist writes in Psalm 16, verse 11, uh, that the Lord makes known to him the path of life. He makes known to us the path of life. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. How many of you are like, Sign me up for the fullness of joy. Like, sign me up right now. I'll take a shot of that. <laughs> yeah, me too. Or how about pleasures forevermore? I'll take it. Where do, I, where do I get in line for that? You know, sign me up. Well, it's in God's presence. It's in Jesus' presence. And friends, more than ever, ever before, people need refreshed. We need refreshed and restored. Would you agree? Just that sense of needing refreshment and restoration and joy in our lives. And do you know what ultimately then we need? We need Jesus. And it's not that we, we, we shouldn't and 
don't and wouldn't be wise to seek restoration and, and help in, in so many areas where God provides it through counseling and uh, through exercise, through, through so many things. But ultimately, the ultimate source of our joy is in the presence of Jesus. And he's the one ultimately who restores us. So uh, as I thought about this year and just kind of everything going on in, in our culture and our church and my own heart, it just became clear that, you know, this year needs to be a year of taking our eyes off of ourselves and turning our eyes on Jesus and seeking him, enjoying him. You know, the writer of Hebrews, he spends the first couple chapters just talking about how amazing Jesus is and his work on the cross for us. And then he starts off chapter three by saying this. He says, so my dear Christian friends, companions in following this call to the heights, take a good hard look at Jesus. He's the centerpiece of everything we believe. It's all about Jesus, is how we kind of like to say it as a church family, isn't it? But so that's what we're going to do this year. We're going to take a good hard look at Jesus. And so these, these first few weeks uh, of the ministry here today and in the next few Sundays, we're just going to be in a short series called It's All About Jesus. We're going to look at a passage in uh, Colossians that is just one of the most succinct and powerful uh, descriptions of Jesus ever penned. And then we're going to come uh, in September, we're going to take about five weeks, and uh, we're going to look at uh, what does it look like to, to speak about Jesus to other people? How do we go about uh, inviting other people to follow him with us and loving people? And then we're going to come back again, and we're going to look at the heart of Jesus and of his, uh, his gentle and loving heart toward us. And uh, that's where we're headed this fall. It's just kind of slowing down, getting our eyes off of us, getting our eyes onto Jesus and onto his mission. And I believe that he'll bring restoration to us. He'll bring joy to you and to me as we do that. And I believe a watching world uh, will see that joy in us and long to have it for themselves. Are you with me? So that's where we're headed. And um, uh, so we're going to get started in a moment and uh, turn to Jesus, first in prayer though, and then uh, we're going to just take a good hard look at Jesus Christ today. Let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks that he is preeminent. He is first and in everything. He holds all things together, as we'll see this morning. And uh, Lord Jesus, that you're the source of our joy and uh, of our happiness and of our hope. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you work in me as I teach and uh, preach your word today? Let my words be your own. And uh, would you draw our minds and our hearts toward Jesus, uh, that he might be made much of, and that we would see it truly is all all about him. Let us make him first in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if we're going to talk about Jesus, we, we got to ask the question right out of the gate, who is he? Who is Jesus? You're like, well, come on, Josh, we're in church. Like, we know who Jesus is, do you? Let's, let's think for a moment of who Jesus is. Well, first off, his name, Jesus Christ, is pretty descriptive of him. Uh, Jesus is uh, the uh, derivative of the Old Testament name Joshua, 
a Hebrew name that means Yahweh, God, saves. So that's his name, God saves. And then uh, his title, Christ, uh, means the anointed one of God. So in his name, Jesus Christ, Jesus is God who saves, the anointed one of God who saves, who's been sent to save his people. Pretty good summary of who he is. And and Jesus, friends, he he is God. He's the anointed one of God who is God. And and he added, we're going to talk about this this morning, he added humanity to his deity so that he could redeem us, sinful humanity, to be his own people. And you know, he did this about 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, uh, God himself, put on flesh and added humanity to his deity. Now, how many of you, if you were uh, almighty God, creator of everything, ruler of the universe, and you were going to enter into your creation, you'd be like, I'm making a big deal out of this one. I mean, there's gonna, it's going to be like lights flashing, loud noises, and I'm going to be like, here I am, right? Would you be like that? But that's not how Jesus shows up, is it? He shows up uh, pretty much in obscurity, He puts on flesh being born as an infant, vulnerable, and uh, and he's born in obscurity in a small agricultural town. (coughs) Not only this, but he was born to a teenage girl out of wedlock. Mary was single and unmarried, and then Jesus would be adopted by Mary's fiance, who would later become her husband, Joseph, uh, of a blue-collar guy who swung a hammer for a living and worked as a carpenter. And, until, and, and Jesus' life, really up until about age 30, is lived in almost total obscurity. We just don't really know much at all about his life growing up. But we do know that he was fully human. And we can make some assumptions then that uh, he grew up like any other boy would have grown up. Uh, he, as far as we can tell, he grew up playing with his younger sisters and his two younger brothers, James and Jude, who would go on to write books of the Bible. And he would have went to school and done all the things that a normal kid at that time in that area would have done. He probably skinned his knee. He probably tripped and cried. He went through every emotion that a young boy growing up would have went through. When he got older, the assumption is that since he was the oldest in the family, he, he probably took on the job of his father. And uh, like his daddy Joe, uh, likely, we don't know this 100%, but it's likely Jesus would have picked up a hammer as well and swung it for a living as a carpenter, working, by the way, not only with wood, but also with stone in those days. And, you know, Jesus didn't have long hair, probably. That's a bit of a myth. And not only did he not have long hair, he would have had short hair like other Middle Eastern men of the day. Um, But he also uh, probably didn't have light skin and blue eyes, like the picture I remember seeing as a kid. He would have had dark skin, dark eyes, and uh, looked just like a very normal Middle Eastern man. He would have looked pretty masculine as well. He would have been in good shape swinging that hammer, and the reality is he would have walked pretty much everywhere he went. So he would have been in pretty good shape. Isaiah the prophet told us that there was no beauty or majesty in him, humanly speaking, that would attract us to him. And so Jesus looked like a normal, everyday guy who carried a lunchbox to work and swung a hammer and just a rugged man. That's what Jesus would have been like, just an everyday, average Joe. 
And then at about the age of 30, he begins a ministry where he, he preached God's word, he was teaching and healing people and performing miracles. And ultimately, Jesus ends up being put to death a few years later because he wouldn't quit telling people, I'm God. And he wouldn't deny that fact. Well, his resume, humanly speaking, was pretty simple. Think about it. He never married. He never had children. Uh, He never ran for political office. He never oversaw a large company. He never traveled more than a, a few hundred miles from home. Never visited a big city, as far as we can tell, other than Jerusalem. Never went to college. Yet Jesus Christ is the most extraordinary the most loved and the most hated, the most widely considered person in all of human history. This guy who grew up in a town of about 400 people in the hillside of Nazareth. How does that happen? Furthermore, we actually count time around his life. B.C., before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. And, you know, if you go to college now, you'd find out it's BCE, before the Common Era. But when did the Common Era start? When Jesus was born. So we literally divide time around this man's life. He's at the center of human history. And today there's millions upon millions, if not billions of people, walking the face of the earth who worship him as God. As we like to say... It's all about Jesus. So for the next few weeks, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the truth that it is all about Jesus, and we're going to study uh, the greatest succinct description of Jesus that I believe is ever penned in Colossians chapter 1. And, and this passage that we're going to look at is actually considered by a lot of scholars to be a hymn that would have been either sung or recited uh, as the early church gathered on a regular basis. So uh, if you got your Bible, you can turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. And uh, we're going to start in verse 15. Uh, We're going to read through verse 23, but we're not going to unpack all of that today. Uh, But I am going to read through all of it. So you can read along with me in your own copy of God's Word or from the screen. And I'm going to start in verse 15. Paul writes this. He says, He, speaking of Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you? You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 
If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. About the Lord Jesus. And so let's back up to the beginning of that passage and start to unpack it. We're going to do this over the next few weeks. And starting in verse 15, we read this, that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Now that word image, uh, there's a Greek word used there for image, and the Greek word is icon. And from that Greek word, we get our English word, icon, (laughs) right? An icon meaning a, a representation of something, an imprint of the real thing. In fact, it often means the perfect representation of something, a one-for-one exchange. So when Paul writes that he, Jesus, is the icon, the image, the the one-for-one representation of the invisible God, what is he saying about Jesus? He's saying that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He is almighty, eternal God. He is. Did you know that? You know, he didn't begin to exist when he put on flesh when he was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago or at his conception in Mary's womb. Jesus is is eternally God, and as part of the Trinity, along with the Father and the Spirit, he shares all the attributes of deity. He has existed from the beginning of everything, and he will exist until after everything. Everything. He was there at creation. He was there in the beginning. We're going to see this morning, he actually created everything. Friends, Jesus is God. Now, I'll never forget the first time uh, I preached this passage. I had uh, just moved into the lead role here uh, just over a decade ago, and I was preaching through the book of Colossians. And I had somebody uh, come up to me, a man come up to me, and he he said, you know, I've never heard before that Jesus is God. And I was thinking, you've been here a long time. You've heard before that Jesus is God. It's just never made sense to you before. And it's always a reminder to me that there might be some of you even who you've been here a long time, but you've never come to grips with the fact that Jesus isn't just a a godly person in the Bible, but he truly is God in the flesh. He is almighty God. And, And to believe anything less of him is to cease to be Christian. Uh, In fact, um, uh, Paul writes this to Timothy. He says he's blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. That's what Paul says of Jesus, of God. You know, so uh, Jesus himself even said this in, in John 14, he told Philip, if, um, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because I and the Father are one. You know what that tells me? If you want to know what God is like, where should you look? At Jesus, because he's God. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus, because he's the perfect image, Paul writes here, the image of the invisible God. The New Testament makes no bones about it. Jesus Christ is God. We, we read, as we started the service today from Hebrews chapter 1, 
where the writer of Hebrews says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, to our ancestors, by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And now look what it says about Jesus, whom, whom he appointed the heir of all things. In other words, the one who owns everything. Through whom also, what did he do? He created the world. Now, what does the one who created the world sound like to you? Sounds like God to me, doesn't it? Let's keep reading. Look at verse 3. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Friends, Jesus Christ is God. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. And that's why we're going to take a hard look at him this fall and think a lot about him. John writes in in chapter 1, verse 18, that no one has ever seen God, the the only God who's at the Father's side, but but he, Jesus, has made him known. If If you want to know what God looks like, what God is like, look at Jesus. Because he's God. And not only that, if you... Because Jesus was fully God, but also fully human, and an image bearer, the perfect image of God, you know, you and I image God, and so if we want to know what what that looks like to image God and how we're supposed to live our lives, we can also look to Jesus to know who we are and who we're supposed to be. We can look to Jesus to know who God is, but we can also look to Jesus to know who we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to live, because we're made in the image of God. You and I are as humanity. Genesis 1 tells us uh, this in the, during the creation account. God said, let us make man, <coughs> meaning mankind, humanity, in our image after our likeness. A reference to the Trinity there. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. See, you and I are made in God's image. But you and I have also sinned. And so it's like that image, that reflection of God in our lives, it's like we've taken a rock to the mirror and just shattered it. And now it's a little bit distorted and kind of like a funhouse mirror where we don't ever image him perfectly. But Jesus is putting that image back together. He's restoring us. And so if we want to know what that's going to look like and what it ought to look like and how we live, we can look to Jesus, who's the perfect image of God, who perfectly images him in his humanity. Do you want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know what you should be like and I should be like? Look at Jesus. Sounds kind of like it's all about Jesus, doesn't it? It is. It's all about him. Uh, you know, uh, even in terms of how we live, you know, you remember those bracelets, WWJD, what would Jesus do? I, I always thought it ought to just be WDJD, what did Jesus do? Because we can look at him and see how we're to live our lives. And, and Paul tells us in Philippians to have the same attitude that he had. Who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Well, let's go back to Colossians again now. In in verse 15, uh, we've just kind of looked at that first phrase. He's the image of the invisible God. Uh, And then it says, uh, Paul writes, he's the firstborn of all creation. Okay, hold on. Josh, you just said that he's God, that he's eternal. 
And now Paul's saying that he's the firstborn of creation. That sounds to me like he was created, like that he started to exist when he was born. Well, in modern English, it does kind of sound like that, doesn't it? I mean, you break that down first, the beginning, born, didn't exist, was created, here he is. But the problem is that that's not the way uh, that phrase would have been used when this was written 2,000 years ago. Uh, grammatically, you might be able to translate it as, you know, the firstborn in creation, but that's really not what's being communicated. And some of you, you may have had this experience, Jehovah's Witnesses who, who would not believe that Jesus is God, look at this passage and say, see, see, he was created. He was created, he was firstborn, he's not God. But they misinterpret uh, what this really means, and so I kind of want to help you understand that this morning. And a few reasons why it doesn't mean firstborn in creation is that the whole point of this passage that we read is to show Jesus' superiority over everything. Well, if he's part of creation, he's not superior over it. Other statements about Jesus in this passage say that he's the creator of everything, that he upholds everything. They indicate his superiority over it. And the firstborn can't be part of the creation if, in fact, he created all things, can he? can't create himself. That doesn't work. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, by the way, they'll, they'll oftentimes wrongly add in the word other like six different times in this passage to say that, you know, uh, uh, that he, he, he is firstborn over the other creation. You know, he created the other things. Um, but that's not in the Greek text. The Greek word for firstborn uh, here is, is a Greek word, uh, prototokos. I think I'm saying that right. And the only reason I share that with you is because to say a different word, that he was the first created, is a totally different Greek word, protoktesis. So it's a different word. That's the only reason I bore you with Greek words this morning. See, the, the problem here... Uh, let me try to make this a little more practical, is that people are, are we, we tend to read a 21st century understanding of this term back into Paul's first century use of the term firstborn. And he's using it positionally, not in terms of created order, but positionally, his, Jesus' position. And do you know that the word firstborn can actually mean position today as well? It can, it can reference position in my family, I'm uh, the firstborn of four boys. There's a picture of me and my brothers in Florida last winter. And uh, I am the firstborn of all the Wylands. Before any of them were, I was. Right? Like, I, I predate all of them. I exist before all of them. Uh, but you know, I'm not the firstborn of all the Wylands, am I? I'm not positionally first among all the Wylands because uh, before me was my dad, my dad Tony. This is a picture of him and I when he was playing softball. I was about four years old there with my showbiz pizza t-shirt. But then even before my dad, he wasn't the first either. Before him was my grandpa Charles. And before Charles was my great-grandpa Albert. And even before him... There was someone firstborn before him, too, Carl Julius, which I always thought, that's a cool name, Julius. Maybe I'll go with that if I ever change my name. 
I'm, not, I'm the firstborn maybe in my small family positionally, but I'm, I'm not the firstborn of all the Wylands. But what, is it, what does Paul write about Jesus and his position as the firstborn? He's the firstborn of what? All creation. He's positionally first. He predates all of it. He existed before any of it came to be. He's the firstborn of all creation. Jesus appears to John in Revelation chapter 1, and in his glory, Jesus uh, well, John writes this, he said, I saw him and I fell at his feet as though I was dead, but he laid his right hand on me and he said, fear not, I am the first. But he's not only the first, he also said, I am the last. He's there at the beginning, he's there at the end. He's God. He's the firstborn of all creation. He was before all creation. He's supreme and sovereign over all creation. In other words, Paul's just telling us Jesus is God. He explained in no uncertain terms that that as believers, we need to focus on the deity of Jesus Christ or our Christian faith will fall prey to false teaching. To put Jesus any lower than God is really to lose the central truth of Christianity. You don't don't buy it yet? Let's keep reading and see what else Paul says because not only does he say that he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, he goes on now in verse 16 to say that uh, Jesus is actually the Lord of, of all, of everything. Jesus is God and he's Lord of all. Uh, look at verse 16. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. By the way, I, I dare you as we read these next two verses, I dare you to find one place where Jesus isn't completely Lord over everything and in control of literally everything. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Friends, creation is all about Jesus. He's the Lord of all, like we sang this morning. Verse 16 starts off for, it's like therefore, because, because, because he's God, uh, in light of this fact, for by him all things were created because he's God. John starts off his gospel saying that in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, speaking of Jesus, and the word Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Friends, Jesus is the beginning. He's the origin. By him, everything was created. We already saw that in Hebrews chapter 3, that he's the creator of everything. John says it. Paul says it. And in order to create something, I don't know about you, but as far as I can tell, in order to create something, you have to exist before it, don't you? (laughs) You have to pre-exist it. Well, he's the creator of all things. Well, what things, Josh? Well, Paul tells us things in heaven. You ever look up at the sky at night on a clear night and see all the stars? The moon last night, I don't know if you saw the moon last night, it was like a half moon and it was just huge over in the western sky and and bright orange. Well, Jesus created all of that. 
and, and he spoke it into existence. He's the creator of all things in heaven, in the heavens, and, and everything on earth. How about if you look down around you, look at the beauty of creation. Did you watch any of the storms last week? Did you see any of the lightning? See just beauty around you? He's the creator of all of it, in heaven and on earth. The things you can see, the things that are visible, but also the things that are invisible. Pull out a microscope and look closer at something that you can't see with your naked eye. The, the more you look, as you delve into the world of, of things that are invisible to our naked eye, the more you see his beauty and his creative power. And how about just things in general that you can't see, like the unseen realms and angels, and he, he's the creator of all of it. All of it. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, he's before it all, friends. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he says that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. In other words, he's not only God now, he will be forever and has been forever. All things, Paul says, he just wraps it up. After he goes, you know, he says, in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, everything, all things were created through him. They were created through Jesus. All things. Can you get your mind around that? You know, one thing, though, that this uh, can tend to cause some angst in our hearts about in our sinfulness and in the reality of the broken world we live in now because of our sin, is, well, what about evil then? Did God create evil? Did he create sin and brokenness? Well, uh, John Calvin would often borrow an illustration from Augustine when he talked about the problem of sin and evil, and I'm going to kind of adapt it for you this morning. I, I told you earlier about uh, my, my bike trip to Iowa, right? And I like to ride my bike in the summer. And uh, one of the things, if you ever uh, go on a long bike trip in Iowa in the heat of July and all the humidity, is you're going to realize that on some of those roads is some roadkill and a fresh roadkill, like a couple-day-old fresh, right? Because there's a lot of guys in big trucks that will fillet a raccoon in Iowa on the hot pavement, and it'll sit there and wait for you to bike past it. And if you're not careful, as soon as you bike past it, if you take a breath at the wrong time, it'll about knock you off your bike, right? I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's rancid. You ever, you ever got a whiff of that before? Some of you, are, you're, you're grimacing right now, even as I talk about it. You just don't run into it. You hold your breath. And uh, part of the reason that that dead carcass reeks so bad is that the hot rays of the sun have been beating down on it, causing this huge stench. Now, let, let me ask you this. If you've ever had the unfortunate experience of, of smelling that, what was your reaction? Did, did you smell that dead carcass and look up and think to yourself, I hate the sun. I hate its hot rays of heat that caused this stench. It's altogether worthless and a bother. The stench of the sun's rays are more than I can bear. 
You ever thought that? You're like, no, that'd be, that'd be stupid, wouldn't it? It'd be foolish. The sun didn't cause the smell. It's just that the, the power and radiant heat of the sun revealed the stench and odor of death. The fact is, the sun heats the earth. It causes life to flourish and grow. It melts the snow. It, it shines light so we can see. See, the sun didn't create the stench, but its power made it manifest. And in the same way, Calvin and Augustine would have argued, and I would as well, that God doesn't and did not create evil, so to speak, but the sheer glory of his holiness shines such a bright light on its awfulness that it brings evil and sinfulness to our attention. So maybe that's helpful to you. Because Jesus is the radiance of the image of the glory of, the, of God, and he, he created all things. All things were created through him and for him. He's the end for which everything exists. Willingly or not, all things are moving toward his glory to bring him praise. And every knee, that's why we, Paul writes in Philippians, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, everything is marching toward bringing more and more glory to Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus being in control and in power over everything, he can even take uh, the evil in the world and use it in such a way that, that it will ultimately bring him glory and, and result in good for those who love him. That's phenomenal power. And that's who Jesus is. Friends, Jesus is God. He's Lord of, of all and over everything. And as we wrap this morning, we need to, to recognize that he is to be first in all things. First. Preeminent. He's before all things. Uh, he precedes all things. He's, he's there. He's, he's eternal. He's always existed. He's before everything. And in him, verse 17 tells us, all things hold together. Everything holds together in him as well. Now, it's curious to me that Paul would pen this when his life, he, he was in prison when he wrote this. He was in prison. And he's writing that Jesus is in control of everything. He's before everything. He holds everything together. And I don't know about you, but if I'm Paul, I'm thinking, my life is out of control. What do you, he's really, he's in control? Yeah, he totally is. And I've shared this illustration. Some of you will recognize it from the past. But of Jesus holding all things together, uh, I want to reference to you uh, a guy by the name of Lee Chestnut. Lee Chestnut. Lee Chestnut, back in the 1970s, wrote a book called The Atom Speaks. The atom, like, you know, the, the tiny nuclear particle that makes up everything? A-T-O-M. Uh, he writes this, he says, um, consider the dilemma of the nuclear physicist when he looks in utter amazement at the pattern that he's drawn of the oxygen nucleus. Just the nucleus of oxygen. For here, there are eight positively charged protons, 
associated together within the confines of this tiny nucleus another eight neutrons. <coughs> A total of 16 particles, eight which are positively charged, and eight with no charge. Now, if you're not scientific at all, uh, that you don't maybe care about that, but, but hang on. Earlier, he writes, physicists had discovered that like charges of electricity and like magnetic poles repel each other. <coughs> you ever do that with a magnet? Especially maybe when you're a kid, you get some magnets and you know, it's got the plus end and the minus end and you try to push the plus ends together and what's it do? Repels. You try to push the, the negative ends together and what's it do? It repels. And uh, that, that's kind of what he's saying here is that physicists have discovered this, like charges of electricity and like magnetic poles repel each other. And the entire history of the electrical phenomenon is built upon these principles. It's known as Column's Law of Electrostatic Force. The fact that when uh, there are like particles together, they repel one another. And so scientists begin to wonder then, well, what's wrong with the nucleus of oxygen? I mean, what, what holds it together? It's got eight positively charged protons and nothing negative to hold it together. The other eight are neutral. Why doesn't it just push itself apart? In fact, uh, why don't all atoms just fly apart? Well, Chestnut goes on to describe experiments from the 1920s and 30s where powerful atom smashers were used to fire protons into the nuclei of atoms. Resulted in nuclear bombs and nuclear power and just in incredible, incredible power in that. Those experiments gave scientists an understanding of the incredibly powerful force that holds protons together within the nucleus. Scientists have dubbed that force the strong nuclear force, but they have no explanation for why it exists. Sometimes they refer to it as nuclear glue. Uh, one of the physicists uh, who developed the Big Bang Theory of the universe wrote this. He said, you know, the fact that we live in a world in which practically every object is a potential nuclear explosion without, and, and that, that we're not blown to bits is astounding. And then he goes on and has no explanation for it. Carl Darrell, he's a physicist, was a physicist at Bell Laboratories. He wrote this, uh, summarized. He said, you grasp what this implies. It implies that all the massive nuclei have no right to exist at all. Indeed, they never should have been created. And if created, they should have blown up instantly. Yet here they are. Some inflexible inhibition is holding them relentlessly together. Might I suggest that this inflexible, inhibiting force is in fact Jesus Christ? Because Paul writes this, he says, through him everything was created, and in him all things hold together. In his second letter, Peter uh, teaches that someday... Uh, the earth is going to melt with fervent heat. Makes you wonder if on that day it isn't just Jesus releasing his sustaining grip on everything. Friends, Jesus is God. He's the creator of everything. He's before everything. He holds all things together. 
A small wonder then that as we keep reading in verse 18 that uh, Paul writes that he's the head of the church. Who else would be in charge? Who else would be the senior pastor of the church but Jesus? Verse 18, he's the head of the body of the church. We're going to talk about that next Sunday, that the church is all about Jesus. He's the beginning, he's the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything, how many things? Everything. He might be preeminent. That he might be first. See, friends, uh, Jesus is first. He's preeminent in everything, in church, in history, in music, in politics. Paul here is describing this, the, the all-surpassing supremacy of Jesus Christ. He's first in everything. As we like to say, it is all about Jesus. How about in your life? Is he first in your life? Now, it's kind of a loaded question, isn't it? Because we all recognize that the reality is we all want to be first in our own lives. Let's see if I can demonstrate it for you. You ever, you ever look back at old pictures of you or maybe your class growing up in school? Who's the first face you look for? Your own. <laughs> Why? Because you're first. You ever get into a big argument with somebody? I mean, like a really big one that for days and weeks, maybe months afterwards, you're replaying it in your mind, right? And, and you're like, oh, I got an answer for that one, and I got an answer for that one, and I got an answer for that one. Tell me, when you replay that argument, who wins? You do, don't you? Now, I've lost a lot of arguments. I, I've, I've never lost a replay. I always win that one. Why? Because I want to be first. I want to be the one who's in charge and in control. I mean, it's kind of pathetic, isn't it? We're all that way. And in our sin, we want to take the place that belongs to Jesus, and, and we want to be first in everything, but the reality is that's a position he already has. He's first in everything. And part of the Christian life is, is repenting and continually yielding first place back to him. And the cure for our numbness, the cure for our attitude, the cure for, for everything, ultimately at a heart level, is returning Jesus to that place of preeminence on a daily, hourly, minute-to-minute basis in our lives. So let me ask you, is he first? Because there can only be one person in first place, right? I mean, how many people won the Indy 500 this year? Who finished in first? Just, just one. How many people started in pole position at the Daytona 500 in first place? How many? Just, just one. Who's going to end in first place in the National League Central Division this year? How many teams? Just one. And it won't be the Cubs. <laughs> so is he first in your life? Until Jesus is first in every area of my life, I'll never experience the joy I was created to know. First in my thoughts, first in my speech, first in my home, first in my sexuality, first in my finances, the first thought in my text messages, first in my family, 
first in my friendships, first in my character, first in my media choices, first in my diet and in what I eat, first, the, the, the first place in my relationships, first in my actions, first when I'm on the internet, the first thought when I go to the movies, first in my marriage, first in my singleness, first in my time, the first place in my job, the first place I turn after I sin, the first one I call on when I'm in need, the first one I thank for blessing in my life, the, the first thought, my first thought when I'm sinned against, first when I'm driving my car, first in what I look at, the first thought when I'm forgiven, first when I'm alone, first when I'm with others, first when I lose, first when I win, first in the church, first in my life group, first in our student ministry, first in our kids' ministry, first at school, first at play, first in my giving, first when I set my calendar for Sunday morning, first in my worship, first in my planning for the future, first on the golf course when I miss the gimme, First when I speak of other people. First when I pay my taxes. First when I pray. First when I look in the mirror. First when I choose what to wear. First, the first thought when I see my own sin. The first thing that I'm thankful for. The first thought when I consider my mortality. First in my sickness. First in my suffering. First on my social media profile. First when I don't understand. First in what I listen to. First in my pain. First in what I believe about myself. First in how I raise my kids, first in my joy, the, the first one I submit to, my first thought in the morning, the first one I turn to in repentance, first in my motivation, first in glory, first when I'm confused, first in my studies, the first thought when I consider others, first in my business dealings, first in everything. Preeminent. It's what it means. Is he first in your life? Friend, uh, if you've never trusted Jesus, you can turn to him in faith. Say, Jesus, I love you. Or, I thank you that you love me, actually. And I've sinned against you, and I ask you to save me. And he's faithful to do that, to make him first in your life. And like me, you'll, you'll fail at that on a daily basis. But he'll also be faithful to continually remind you that he is first and to draw you back to putting him in the first place. And then the more and, and quicker that you can do that day to day, the more your joy will grow and your peace will abound and you'll have purpose. Let's pray.